Welcome to Fair Folk. I'm Danica Boyce. In this episode, my guest is Scott Richardson Reed, the creator of the blog called The Kayak's Herbarium, who shares reams of valuable and thoughtful information about that Gaelic folkloric figure or deity called the Kayak, the Old Woman, the Carlin, the Hag. Scott is a queer Scottish folk magic practitioner living in the Scottish borders. He's a trained researcher, social worker, and psychologist who works alongside minority communities. As a native Scottish person, he explores Scottish folk traditions, customs, and ways of living to uncover Scottish folk practices before the impact of the Reformation and other colonial influences, in the hopes that it can help provide solutions to our modern condition and ongoing challenges. The kayak has been a major figure in Scottish and Irish folklore and mythology for as long as anybody knows. She's connected to many landmarks in Scotland and Ireland and has been associated with wintertime, which is why I chose to feature her on Fair Folk right now at the beginning of winter. She bears some resemblance to winter goddesses like Perchta and Frau Halla, but as Scott demonstrates in this conversation, there is much, much more to her than that. You may find, as I did, that beyond her connection to this season, she might be just the lady to help folks who feel disconnected from their spiritual ancestry to reforge a relationship with that hidden inheritance, especially as it relates to our connection to land itself. This is my conversation with Scott Richardson Reed in the first week of November 2022. Beyond your blog and your project being named after the kayak, You've also recently written a series of posts about this figure. So it's an active interest in your mind right now. And it's actually information that people have really been looking for. In my understanding, people are always wondering. People who are interested in Gaelic and or Celtic tradition are curious about this figure and like to talk about her. And it's not always easy to find the kind of information that you might want. And I'd like specifically to you that she's this folk magic figure and this seasonal magic figure. Like she seems to have a finger in every pie (laughs) in terms of folk culture. And I'm really just curious who she is. How would you summarize this being who seems to be, according to what I've learned from you, so multi-faced and multi-talented? Who's the kayak? Who is she? Oh my gosh. Where to begin? I like the phrase of the kayak as like Scotland's midwife. I think it's a good entry into who the kayak is as a as a kind of idea. And there's loads and, and loads and loads and loads and loads and loads and loads. And loads. <laughs> Did I say loads? Loads of stories about who the kayak is. Some of them are the like the Mackenzie story, which is the breed and Angus. And in the story, the kayak is a mean woman who keeps Breeze prisoner because she doesn't want Breeze to marry her son. He's Angus, who lives in the land of youth, which is the other world, who comes through in spring. And it's this whole story of the kayak as a winter representation. Breeze as spring and Angus as summer and father winter is thrown in there and there's other people and stuff. I don't know if you've read the story. You can tell I'm not really a fan, I think, <laughs> I'm explaining it. It's a little bit Cinderella. It's a little bit 
Sleeping Beauty. It's a little bit, I don't know, it feels like quite a story. <laughs> if you know what I mean, that's been arms and legs have been added onto it through time. It's more of a fairy tale than a folk tale. Yeah, very much so. And it's very much, it has elements like old fairy tales have in it of like folk folklore, but it's very embellished and shiny in Hollywood. And I can imagine, you know, seven dwarfs are in there somewhere <laughs> and kind of all of that kind of stuff. So a lot of people are know the kayak from that story, I suppose, and that version of stuff. The kayak is a figure of the wilderness. She is somebody who is very much associated with water and storms. And that's, I think, where the winter correlation starts to come into its own around February in Scotland and before that. But as winter comes in, we get a lot of storms and she's famously associated with eight storm hags, the kayakian who ride goats and wolves and make storms happen at the whim of the kayak. And in the Mackenzie story, of course, these figures are represented. But interestingly enough, we had eight storms this year in February in Scotland, just spookily. And in the old law, they all have names like the Whistler or the Sweeper. Uh, you'll have to excuse me, my Gaelic pronunciations aren't very good, so I'm avoiding the Gaelic words that I'm really uncomfortable pronouncing because I don't want people to be like, Scott said it was this and it's completely wrong. But yeah, there's like the idea that there's these eight handmaidens of the kayak is something really interesting because the storms that we get in Scotland and in the old lore in Banks, you have the wolf ravage month which is the time of the storms. It's also the time of Le Felbrige, which is the midwinter kind of stuff we were talking about earlier. And either side of this, you have all of these storms and then you get a moment of peace for about a week. And people normally say that that is when the kayak is going to go and pick up her firewood. I'm sure that's the kind of familiar story to people. If that week is very calm, it means that winter is... Well, I'm sure it wouldn't be familiar to everyone. If that, yeah, yeah I guess. So it's related to the groundhog tradition in the United States. There's always these sort of weather predictive moments around then. So the kayak, she would gather firewood if the winter is going to be longer. Is that the idea? Yeah, if you can see a shadow over this week, that means the sun's shining. And I think that's where the groundhog shadow comes from. Don't quote me or shoot me with that. So if the weather's good, she's out collecting the wood to create a fire because winter's going to be raging after that. If the weather's bad and there is no shadow, then that means winter is going to come to an end because she's not out collecting wood. So she's tied in with this kind of idea of these storms. She's tied in with serenity stories. But her body is the landscape. There is a... Gaelic scholar called Dr. Alistair White, who has an amazing band called White. Uh, he's the Gaelic ambassador of Scotland. His music's beautiful. And he was doing place name research. He, I think he's in Glasgow. And he was looking at the Isle of Mull. This might seem like a tangent, but we'll come back around. I believe you. I know where you're going, I think. <laughs> yeah, in Old Gaelic, are related to the kayak when you look back. And he was doing lots of research on, on Mullen, these old names and 
there's places that are called like the armpit of the kayak and the kind of headstone of the kayak. And the whole of Mull is literally almost like her body in nature. And I always talk about the oldest book that Scotland has. In fact, a lot of Gaelic culture has is the landscape itself. And the landscape is the book. And I always encourage people if they are in Scotland to learn the names of places that they're going to, because they might sound really nice in Gaelic. And then all of a sudden you're walking to the Valley of the Black Sacrifice or something. <laughs> and you're like, okay, this is a different kind of energy. Where am I going? Yeah, moles. Lots of people think that the kayak is cognant. The word, the etymology of the word comes from like veil or like the Latin pallium and Dr. Alistair White quotes, I can't remember his particular quote, but there is a different kind of etymology of the world that comes from call, which means call, which means loud. Hmm. So he's done a lot of research around the idea of loudness with the kayak. And if you think about the kayak bearer, which means the shrill old woman or the shrill hat. Oh, you start yeah. to kind of be like, ah, okay, maybe there's something in this, like loud, the idea of loud, rather than the nun being veiled. And then we have lots of places in the landscape called out in the kayak, which is the kayak, and they're loud places, and they're dangerous places, and Kori Rekian and Al Kayak, and the Kori Rekian is where it's a big whirlpool, it's outside Jura, that you can travel to on boat, and this is where her eight storm hags would start stirring the water and where she would come and wash her plaid in the water and turn it from gray to white at the start of winter. And that's like another kind of winter connection that we have with the, with the kayak and the Corrivecian. But it's the ah kayak, which is the, the loud, like dangerous place. So aspects of our wilderness, Alistair thinks we're very much related to that. If it's dangerous, there was like an element of wildness about it, then they would get named after the kayak kind of spirit places. She's also stones in, in, in the landscape. She's also famous for having herds of cattle in lots of the stories. And it's not just cattle, it could be deer or sheep or goats, that kind of thing. But also back to the idea of being kind of Scotland's midwife, there's a story of how she, or like why people don't walk straight away when they're born. I don't know, I can tell you a few of these stories and then maybe we could have a chat about them and maybe I might unpick some of the other kind of elements of it. Yes, if you don't mind. So some of them are long, some of them are short. But the first one, the mark left by the kayak, it comes from oral tradition in Ireland. And it is, isn't it a great wonder how a child isn't able to walk as soon as it's born, along with every other kind of young? Not to compare a child to a calf or a lamb, but neither of these is born more than an hour before it's able to walk. And the human child will be two years of age before it's able to put a foot under itself. They say it's the kayak who is responsible for that. At a time that a certain child was born, I don't know which child, she put her hand to the small of his back and that left children ever after, unable to walk quickly when they have come into the world. The kayak left that handicap on them. So that's, that's the story. <laughs> Whoa. And it's like a midwife. That's incredible. I, I immediately like, why? Why? Why would she do it's that? It's a midwife <laughs> the story. I think it, the, if we think about 
in my my take is anyway the midwife to humans was the kayak and it's interesting when you think about Brigitte being the foster mother of Jesus we've got a bit of a correlation here and that's a story that we could talk about too the interrelationship between the two sides of that but the first child was born by the kayak as it's doula if you like and when you take a baby you put your hand on their back and <laughs> amongst other places i'm sure and give birth <laughs> it said something other than the christian story and i think personally relates to the idea that humans were born from a nature that was different and i guess there's that kind of people were born from a nature that was different and we have all of those stories that are the first people were born from trees and it takes a while for plants to learn to walk as humans or animals on the land. I don't know. I talk about it because it's a different way of looking at stuff. And the fact that the kayak has been with us since birth is really interesting. There's other stories that correlate as adolescents as we grow up. And as we get older, we get stretch marks on our bodies. As like our butts get bigger or whatever, <laughs> it grows our shoulders stretch. <laughs> There are stories where they have been caused by the, the kayak as much as the scree on the sides of the hills have been caused by her losing her footing or not holding on very well and moving her hands down. So we have the idea of being embodied in the landscape and the kayak changing the landscape as much as she has changed the landscape of people. I don't know. What do you think? Yes, that we're one and the same. We're not the same as it, but that we're that we're shaped by the same forces and that we're from it. So she shapes the landscape and she shapes the humans and there's intentionality in that. That we're not like dropped in like some alien species from some out of the world place. And is that what you're pointing to with the Christian narrative? Yeah. In the Christian narrative, we're born from God. In the kayak story, we're born from nature. She is the kind of, she's the, the midwife to nature. She builds hills and lakes and wells and all sorts of stuff. So she gave birth to the land as much as she gives birth to the people on the land. And for me, there's something beautiful in the fact that she sounds like her name is grandmother or old woman now. I think there's something really, really beautiful in the idea that the kayak or the kayaks multiple are grandmothers and our first kind of ancestor that helped shape the land that we live on way 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 back so is there a version of the kayak which is our first grandmother of the land a bit like the leveling of the plains and all of that kind of stuff through the different invasions of Ireland and how it was brought to bear with all of these different kind of things that we got to farm and, and maybe the kayak's a version of that. And, and maybe it's a kind of a nice place to think about the kayak as our first grandmother. That's lovely. She's associated with deep time then, like creation and birth and the beginning of us as individuals, but also as a group. You'd say? Yeah. There's a really cool story. It's like you've read my mind. That's about the first day of Beltane's story. I don't know if you've heard this one. This one's a bit longer. And it's called Leon Le Beltane, which means the first day. But you have to bear in mind that I think Luan Le is also a word used for the very last day, like the apocalyptic day. So this is when this story is being told. It's about the very first day <laughs> that ever was. 
It's a bit longer and my storytelling skills are very good. So I'll just go for it and we'll, we'll get to it. I appreciate it. It's <laughs> so much better than nothing. <laughs> All right, go ahead. I can share the stories with you too, Danica. If you were like, oh, Scott said them so badly, I'll just dump that over. I liked the last one. I think you're doing great. I really commend <laughs> you for trying because I know that we grow up with a lot of a lot of shame around public reading for some reason. Yeah, I'm also a little dyslexic, so sometimes I'm like discombobulated, but we'll go for it. There was a woman a long time ago that they used to call Ankalyek Bera. She was very old and she had traveled the length and breadth of the country. She always had a large herd of cows and she had goats and I guess sometimes sheep and a bull. She used to travel from place to place with the animals, from county to county. She didn't stay settled too long in a place. The animals all gathered together at night, gathered into one great assembly and moved on with her the following night. One day she arrived at the mountain Nethin in County Mayo and drove out her beast there in the morning. When the evening came, there wasn't two beasts gathered together. They were scattered hither and thither, and every one of them stayed at the nighttime where they had been during the day. They had eaten so much that they didn't want to move. And the next night, even the same thing happened. So the kayak stayed for many years after that day at the foot of Nefin Mountain with her beasts. There was a man in the area who wanted to hear news and stories from the kayak because he knew that she had lots of old knowledge of all sorts. He knew that she was so old that she knew what had happened for hundreds of years past. He asked her if she could give an account of the day that came a hundred years before that that was awfully cold. The time of year when that happened was Lauren Le Beltane, the very first day of summer. The kayak told him that she had no memory of that day, but she told the man that he should go see the eagle who is in the ruins of a certain place, an old forge, and that maybe he knew how cold it was then. She said the eagle was 300 years older than she was and that the eagle would know a lot of things that she didn't know. The man went off but never rested until he came to the old forge and he found the eagle there before him. He spoke to the eagle and asked him if he could tell him how cold it was in Luang the Beltane, that no day ever since came that was cold as it was and that it was a hundred years since it had happened. The eagle said, I'm here with 700 years. The amble that is in the forge was new and the peak that it had was as thick as any peak that ever was on any anvil. When I used to eat my food, said the eagle, I used to rub my beak on the peak of the anvil on both sides, over and hither, in order to clean. The peak now today is worn and slender from my rubbing of my beak on it after my meals for so long that it is thin as a pin. I have no account of how cold it was, said the eagle. Go to the otter of the rock and maybe he can tell you or give you an account of the cold of Luan Le Beltane. The man went off to find the otter of the rock and the otter was there on the rock when he got there. The man asked the otter, could he tell him how cold it was on the day of Luan Le Beltane that came along? I'm lying on the rock here for 500 years, said the otter, and I have the rock so worn down so deeply that no trace of me is visible on any side of the rock when I'm lying on it. I have no account to give you of the cold of Luan Le Beltane, but go to the half-blind salmon on Isurua, and if he has no account of it to give you, then you will never get an account of it anywhere. So the man went off again and didn't stop until he came to Iasurua and the salmon was there. He called the salmon and the salmon came to him and he asked if the salmon, if he could tell him how cold it was in Luan Le Beltane. I'm about to tell you that, said the salmon. I was here in the place where I am now, and I leaped out of the water to catch a fly. 
in between my leaping and my landing back in the water, there came a thick ice on the river here that held up when I fell back. I stayed there, fallen back on the ice until a seagull came and took my eye out my head. And blood came out of my head from the socket of my eye and the blood melted the ice. And I went back down again to the water. And that was the cold that was there on Luan the Beltane. He says breathlessly. <laughs> it's a cool story. Oh my gosh. That's, I feel like I just heard <laughs> yeah, an incantation of some kind. Like it, There's so many layers. I feel like if you give this to 50 people, they would have 50 different interpretations about what it might mean. But I bet you have a little more of a framework than 50 people on average. What stands out to you about it? I love the fact that stories are said and then they're owned by everyone that hears them and we all get something different from them. For me, it's a cool story about the kayak wasn't here at the very beginning. There are other people around. Also the triad of the kayak, the eagle and the otter and the salmon. Then there's the kind of idea of the eagle is in the air. The otter is between water and earth, and the salmon lives in the water. There's that kind of cosmology idea there. And the kayak came after the ice that the salmon couldn't get through. So she shaped the land after the ice thawed. And I like the idea of shaping things. The cosmology of the three elements or the three environments is really interesting because it harks back to you the kind of idea of the sacred earth, sacred water, sacred air, the three realms, if you like, represented by these three creatures. You've got the curiosity of man. That's a Gaelic thing, isn't it? The earth, the air, and the water. That's a Gaelic triad, isn't it? Like sea, yes. land, or something, is that? Yeah, I'm just trying to think of the triad, but the idea of in the Scottish folk magic at the cosmology, if you apparently asked a Gaelic person what they were scared of, is if the sky would fall in, or the sea would flood, or the earth would give way. So there was always the sacred three realms. But like in witchcraft and stuff, we have four, which is adds, adds in fire. But in the older Scottish folk magic, we don't have that structure. We always have three, and the Antrinom, the sacred three, are these particular sky, earth, and water, sea characters. And later on, the the sky characters became Kirk spirits rather than air spirits, which is just a strange, understandable kind of syncretization. Like church church spirits? like Yeah, the Kirk spirits became the sky spirits. Yeah. But I think what's really interesting for me is at the beginning of time, the salmon gets attacked by a seagull. <laughs> it's yeah. nothing. But at the beginning of time, a seagull comes and it's like, I'm going to have to pull your eye out. So your lifeblood warms the ice so you can escape. And I guess if we change the, the seagull over to a raven and we started to use the words morigen, it might make a bit of a kind of sense of before we get the duality of life and death. You have that kind of, to survive, there must be something given, your heart blood, that kind of stuff that melts the ice. And then you have the salmon who's experienced that wisdom. And that salmon occurs time immemorial in, in, in the stories of the gales, the salmon of wisdom. 
And maybe that's when it got wise. <laughs> the it lost its eye. That's a really common trope, but in, in mythology, the loss of an eye leading to wisdom. Pretty fascinating. It reminds me of the Norse mythology in a couple of ways. The world is made by the body of Ymir being disassembled. But the salmon, I love the salmon being there at the beginning. And also how it's told in reverse. We get the we get history going backwards and how you would count from like BCE or something. <laughs> you hear like the present and then a bit further back and then a bit further back. Instead of starting at the beginning, it ends at the beginning, which is also an ending in, in another context. It's pretty wild. I guess in, in the story as well, because I, I loved that, that it goes backwards. And the kayaks, do you know what? I only know so much, but like she's got the knowledge to pass on to, if we take away the gender of the man and just call it people or humans, they, the humans are curious and they go to the kayak for knowledge and wisdom. And she's, she's wise enough to say, like, I don't know what you need to know, but here is my wisdom. There are people that you can go and speak to other than me. And then the wisdom is like a wisdom story of being passed through the three different elements of the three different start of the kind of cosmology. And in, in Gaelic, we don't really have a very good, we don't have a cosmology story. We don't have the Yeme stories of his brains becoming the clouds, stuff <laughs> like that. For me, that's an oral story that speaks to the, the kind of kayak's wisdom, but also maybe hints at the kind of beginnings and who are these kind of three three creatures that are the beginning creatures if you like we don't really hear them that often in other stories so it's a super interesting one and finn mccall of course meets the salmon of knowledge in the the yes which the red falls later on in other stories with its one eye does it have one <laughs> eye then too but yeah the losing of an eye is very odin Yes. I don't, I don't know what happened to It maybe grew back. It was so wise. And it lives in a well too, doesn't it? Doesn't that salmon of wisdom live in a well? And that's where yeah. Odin had to put his eye in order to have... And eat hazelnuts that pull up. Oh, yes. And There's connection. There's so many bizarre... I mean, it's wonderful. I studied a lot of trolldom, troll cunning with Johannes Galbrecht. Brilliant teacher. You might question why. Is it because a lot of Gaelic and Scottish magic has its very, it's very similar to Swedish, Scandinavian trolldom magic. There's so many kind of similarities. It's unreal. Like the kayak part of her, it's bringing it back to topic. <laughs> the kayak's description in some of it is that she has one eye and blue skin and red teeth and a dun colored cloak. And these are the picture of the Fomorians in the stories were like giants. And people think that maybe the kayak is similar to like a kind of giant figure that you would find in the Scandinavian and Finnish and Norse stories of that kind of primal, unrestrained wilderness energy. And that kind of is to do with the, the flooding of Scotland and how she creates the locks and the wells and stuff. It's just primal stuff that she introduces into things. And is there a kind of correlation between the fairies in Norse stories and Gryler and the Shetland trial stories and all of that that kind of have blended together to present a bigger, a bigger story? Okay, so I asked you to come on the podcast in November because I started noticing that there are all of these, like Gryla from Iceland and 
there's all of these feminine deities that seem to to crop up in midwinter, but who you can see traces in the folklore of similar related topics starting around Samhain and and extending into the end of the winter. Like as as you've probably, I know you've personally heard Terry Gunnell talk about his theory that in in Norse pagan times, pre medieval <laughs> era, that there may have been a sense of feminine divinity or supernatural beings having extra emphasis in the winter time. And so I have also noticed that a lot of folklore about the kayak seems to connect her with the winter, like the gathering of her firewood. And there's something more about frost and storms. And And I'm just wondering if you can speak to, to where she, so beyond this deep time calendar, she seems to also have some cyclical element related to the folk calendar. And I'm just wondering if, if I'm wrong in connecting with her with the winter or if there's just more to the story than that. I, d- I don't think you're wrong, but there's always like another story, isn't there? We could just sit here and just tell stories and we'll just be like, what is right? And I guess what is right is what's right <laughs> at the end of the day. No, that doesn't make sense, but it's what, what's right to us might not be what's right mm. for everyone. Yeah, the value beauty of stories is they have a story there's a plot and we can be like, we can take it literally or we can look a little bit further underneath and we can look for metaphors and allegories and then we can look for kind of all the stories that sit within that. And I definitely think there's something in that to kind of turn into colder nights mm. and when the work in fields is done, what is left to do is to change the things that we gathered in summer into stuff that we can use in winter. Mm. <laughs> So we get the spinning happening, right? We get all of the spinning all the time. <laughs> yes. And people making warm clothes for people. And um, it's just basically where we are. What I'm, where I'm going with that is there's the story of the Gyre Carlin. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if I said that right. In Scotland, who's a spinster in the truest sense, who's related potentially to the kayak who mm-hmm. appears after you. And visits houses and if you don't if you don't take your belt off your spinning wheel you'll be woken to the sound of chaotic fast spinning <laughs> and if you don't leave a pot of water so she can bathe her child in it a crispy on your house kind of story but you can also if you're a spinner you can ask the guy or carlin to if she likes you you can spin as much as four people could She'll teach you the ways of the spinning. What time is that? You said it. It's round about like February time. So we're looking at the coldest part of the, the Gallic year. That's when she comes visits and does all the spinning like a crazy spinster. It's funny how we went from a spinner to a spinster. I think yeah. it, I mean, it just means a career spinner, right? Someone who's doing it for income, although it's become judgmental. Yeah. But Dyer Kylan, to me, it sounds like Germanic. Those words, are they not? Yeah, because Carlin means, I think, old woman in it Icelandic, is. or the old woman, and then Gaia is like a, a circle or a spinning. Is that right? Yeah, and in Scotland, we have loads of different influences. So that is a, like an Anglo-Saxon story that is that sits in the Scottish borders and a little bit beyond Anglo-Saxon influence that we have. So it's particularly... Wow. So it's a bit older than I would have imagined. Southeast coast Scotland. Yeah, that's fascinating. But in terms of like kayaks, she appears in all of the 
in all of the Scottish folk festivals through the year. The idea that the kayak becomes Parisia. Loads of stories about how the kayak and, and the, and the Parisia are really similar. Maybe and stories for other days, Danica, because we'll be here for a really <laughs> long time looking at that. But how there's stories of the kayak, how she has a fair side of her face and a not so nice side of her face, and how that's the two different sides of the year. And also the Angus and Brie story a little bit tells that story, even though Angus is the kayak's son. And then that would mean that she was marrying her own child. And then, yeah, anyway, giving birth to him later. But that's a very pagan story in that kind of wheel of the year narrative. So you've got Le Fail Brie at the middle of February. And we've already talked about that time when she'd off gathering sticks and the kind of name of the storms that happen around that time on the... 5th of March, you've got Le Fel Kayak, or also known as Ladies' Day, which is roughly, I guess, around the spring equinox. Storms called the Kayak that happen. And then in Beltane, Beltane, there is a tradition called the Beltane Bannocks, where you <laughs> make a bunch of little bannock breads. It's like bannocks are the, the staple of every Scottish quarter day festival. <laughs> Basically, bread bread and whiskey is the way to go, but they would change slightly depending on what festival recipe you were using. And anyway, you would char one of them black, and then you'd put them in a bonnet or a wee hat, and then you would hand them out to people, and whoever got the, the black bannock would be thrown in the fire, <laughs> figuratively, and named as the kayak and shunned for the rest of the proceedings. And then Lunasa, the, the festival, you would have the, the last sheaf of straw, who would be called the kayak. So you would start gathering in your straw, and then the last sheaf would become the kayak of the field. And then there's loads of stories about how that would be passed from field to field to field until the last person who gathered in the hay would then have to house the kayak all winter and it wasn't particularly a good thing to be able to do that and um, a bit of a curse on your house there's the kayak of the mill dust song that happens around michaelmas in september they have like the the kayak coming back to life in Samhain at this time of year so this is her kind of like rain and then going all the way through to Again, there's some stories that the breed dog, the bribe doll, is the last sheaf that you would have saved from the Linas of the kayak doll that then becomes the breed dog doll or it becomes the straw in which Breeze sleeps in. So she's kind of at every quarter festival, really. But yeah, I think there's a lot to be said about that kind of focus of feminine activities in the winter and, and more masculine activities in summer. And I don't like the kind of gender binary that I've gone through there, but that idea of there were different tasks that would be put to different people at different times of year that would that would happen that would bring in that that kind of energy or those spirits. So the idea of makes a restful time versus an active time if you want to gender it a little bit and unpick that a bit critically, I think would be a better way of looking. <laughs> and I don't think that men didn't do any wool working, like at least, or is that so? My, my no. sense is that everybody <laughs> would be doing what they could, but maybe people with smaller hands and fine motor skills would be better at it. And so therefore 
more? I don't know. That's a good question because men are indoors as well. I, I don't, They're not just sitting around, I'm sure. Yeah, like everyone's literally not going anywhere because it's cold. <laughs> it's literally like there are lots of jobs you can do with carding wool and all the rest of it that doesn't necessarily require spinning either. It's like a kind of multi-stage process. I have spinner friends that I could introduce you to that you could have that chat. <laughs> I think that it's not one I could kind of comment on. It's really remarkable to me as you tell me all this. And also like, it's lovely to be able to just get like a list. So nice because I've been doing research on these things. All of the things you mentioned are familiar to me, but I've never put them all together in one sort of strand. And to look at it, it's incredible that, that she's there at every major festival. I don't know if that's, if anyone else is present in every other festival, like at least in our remaining tradition. Does anyone else come to mind of these figures or gods, et cetera, as you call them, who's present at every major turn? I have a particular interest, so I might have a particular <laughs> bias to look for these kind of things. And I put my hand up to that. But it was, it was something when I've been researching the quarter day festivals, and there's loads of stuff all about these festivals on my website that people can just dive in and all the references that you need. But it wasn't until I was like, hang on a minute, <laughs> she's actually present in each one of these festivals. And then I put together the list afterwards. It wasn't like the list was there first and then, and then did that. But in terms of other spirits and i i look in in my practice i look at these kind of spirits as like ancestral spirits rather than a kind of deity like thing it's just a different way of relating and it, i don't necessarily think one is right as the other is wrong it's just how i relate to the other people in the land that i live on yeah we have lou around i think he's probably got a lot to say <laughs> brisa is around too i'm sure there's a lot that she plays a part in, but it's not something I've kind of looked through that lens with things. But it's really interesting how she or the kayak is very present in duties to do with the land, like it's straw and it's sacrifice and it's people, people in places and like what your grandmother would do in a way. It's just always being about in all the things. She has a role to play in all sorts of stuff. So. I think looking at the kayak through the lens of winter is really interesting because then you suddenly open all the doors to all the other things that she's that she is and has a hand in. And it's really that kind of a deity, if you like to call that, or an ancestral spirit that's present in everyday life all the time, in everything. And to pull her out and just put her in one place, I think does a little bit of a disservice to her. And that brings us back to your definition of folk magic, right? That it's something that's available in the day-to-day to -to -to all the people, the regular people. It doesn't have to be like a specialized, set-aside one moment of the year. No, and I think that one of the things that I really like to talk about is what I term equity consciousness. And there's a story, lots of stories about, like the story of the the Bodak, Oh, the Tiger the Kayak is very much a hospitality equity consciousness story. Gosh, I was literally presenting about this on Friday. But the idea of a lot of our cultural background was removed through the Reformation and the harm that has been done through the clearances and the diasporic damage that that has taken as we left and got put into indentured slavery. And I'm not saying... It was chattel slavery at all, a different experience. 
people from Scotland can buy themselves out of slavery, whereas people of color could not, and they were treated very differently. But there is still that removal of that equity consciousness that was there before the Reformation and before the clearances with the devotional Reformation that happened around the same time, that we lost our the way that we relate to each other and the the way that we have a sacred hospitality for each other. And the story of the kayak and the folk stories of the kayak very much bring back a focus to that way of relating to each other and also the environment that we're in. And a lot of the kayak stories also represent if you're not good, and I'm good in inverted commas because it's not good as in moral, but if you're not acting in this kind of equity consciousness, you'll come and just cut your head off with an axe or smash your head in with a hammer. There's lots of stories like that. She has a hammer. I've been curious about her hammer. Do you have an example that you can think of one of these, one of these stories or one of these? Yes, really briefly, there is a story where she goes to get fish and seaweed and some other things from these really far-flung places in Ireland. People thought she was really rich and she was like, hang on, I'm going to steal a lobster. So she stole a lobster and she put it in a box with a hole on the front of it and put it under a bed. So basically she went across the land to go gather dulcy from one shore and fish from another shore. And it's kind of like the sovereignty idea in that. And while she was at the house, a guy came in was like, I'm going to steal from the kayak because a fair wind for one is a profitable wind for another and searches all around her house and then can't find what he's looking for until he finds a box with a hole in it under her bed. So then he's like, right, I'm going to rummage around, see what I can find in this box. As he does so, the lobster just grabs hold of his hand with both its claws and he can't escape from the box, thinking it's full of gold, but obviously not. And then he's still there when the kayak arrives home and she just says, you did well, lobster, and then kills the thief with her hammer. <laughs> I know it's a bit weird, but that's a story about the kayak's wealth isn't gold, it's like nature and how we relate to nature because it's you don't treat nature well, it's going to come and cut your head off, basically. <laughs> and I think that's one of those like sacred reciprocity stories with a little bit of humor in it. We need to like that equity conscious and how we relate to each other is really, really important and something that is the cornerstone. If you're interested in folk magic, I would say the absolute cornerstone. If there was one rule in folk magic, it's reciprocity. It's that doing deals, doing bargains, asking permission. And that reciprocity, that idea of if you give to me, you will get back in return. And it's a continual cycle of things. And that's why going back to the definition of folk magic is that folk magic was everybody's thing because people were always acting in reciprocity and in thanks to one another and in their wider communities, especially in the Gallic society. And as I said, that just got wiped out with the clearances and the reformation. There's one thing that I wish that we could get back, it would be that idea of equity consciousness, I think, between peoples and other than human peoples. And it's so, so alive with the, the kayak because it's about access to land as well, right? That it was about like that when folks had 
access to land, direct access to resources, they were empowered to share those resources with one another in a way that was was like locally managed. And the community would be, it would be alive for you how you exchanged with one another. Whereas there's so much mediation now and so little direct. It's like, how do we get back to that part where we actually have our feet on the ground and can share? But again, it starts with a consciousness more than I don't know. It's a bit of both, right? It's like it started with the severing from land. And now it's a way of thinking as well that seems to perpetuate. Yeah. It's hard to embody a practice when you can't embody it. I think it's the riddle of that because the commons don't exist anymore. Communal spaces don't really exist anymore. You can, I think you can experience a little bit of this when you are in a collective or a mehal in, in Gaelic, that kind of idea of coming together to achieve a thing, but still we're constrained <laughs> all the time just by how the world is at the moment and it's just getting worse. <laughs> you ask me, we live in scarcity, I guess, but we don't, but do we? That idea of reciprocity is hard when you feel like you have to hold on to everything that you have because you're worried. My last question was, what would you suggest to people who want to work with the kayak or start establishing a relationship with this figure? I almost wonder if part of the answer, like that I'll just volunteer synthesizing what you've said, is that she might be exactly the kind of figure to turn to for support in the project of restoring the commons or even understanding how to address the loss of the commons among European diaspora peoples. Please comment. <laughs> yeah, it's hard because the, the kayak is in our landscape. So if you're in Scotland, it's really easy to just to see her because she's everywhere. And I mean that literally, just like she is the landscape that we're in. I think for the diaspora, it's going to be harder to make those connections. But if we think about what I said in terms of kind of grandmother kayak, that look to your lineage a little bit. Um, and see who brings that kind of notion to you. Which grandmother came through? You'll have the grandmother who, if you're in the diaspora, who came across in the clearances, and but that's going to be hard to unpick through colonization and stuff. And there's damage on all sides of that, and it's a really complex thing to do. And this is something I really struggle with. <laughs> I've run events where diasporic people come and ask me these questions all the time, and I don't feel equipped that I have the answer to it. But one of the things that we are looking to do is put together an event that we're calling Ebb and Flow. And it's looking at the, there's a fragment, it's literally called Fragment in the Camino Gadelica, which is like the Ebb and the Flow as it was, as it is, and as it shall be by the Ebb and the Flow, by the Sacred Trinity, as it was, as it is, as it will be. And we framed a exploratory, like four, workshoppy event around that and we're providing deep time touchstone stories and then we're exploring what was where are we now what do we want to come later and it's in collaboration with first nations people in seattle wow to look at the commonalities that we have between scotland stories and what's happening here and first nations people stories and what's happening there and how we can build some bridges because <laughs> i don't it's really hard for me to speak to a land I don't know 
and are people who are removed from my experience. Like it's really tough and it sometimes I just feel like I'm being massively patronizing or like flippant or in terms of the kayak is the landscape that we're in. She's a sovereignty figure. She is wilderness itself. She is stone. She is sea. She is locks. She is well. She's whirlpool. She's snow. She's storm. She's weather, winds. Gosh. So wherever you are, there's going to be an element of that. But because she's the sovereignty of a place, my kind of put back to that is like, what is the sovereignty of the place that you're in and how does it relate and how do they how is there a blending, which isn't problematic? It isn't like an overwriting, but it's a kind of appreciation of different things. And what are the stories of the land that you're in now? Because I know that I have access to Canmore and old maps in Scotland. It's just, they have loads of them. And you can literally just drill back through the years and you can find names in the landscape really easily. And the landscape then becomes the book. And then you find out what's next to you. And in terms of the diaspora, what are the names in the land that you're in? How does that relate? Because at the end of the day, we're all human and we all have a need that all is very similar, no matter where we came from. But how do we do that in partnership and in collaboration? And within that equity consciousness, that's really important where we find ourselves now and the people that were there before. There'll be something similar, I'm sure in the land and in the landscape. And maybe it's a, a way forward is exploring that through communities of different people. And maybe that's what the kayak brings us a little bit. To the land that we're on. Maybe. And you know what? I think I would suggest people go read your blog posts as well about the kayak because you, you point them towards so many like primary texts, which is a very helpful thing because little mediation as possible is a really helpful way to learn about a tradition. I mean, it's always mediated by something, but finding the older story or song or, or text that we can access. And you've shared a wonderful selection of those. They're all there for the reading and the understanding. And my take on something might not be somebody else's. And that's what keeps it alive and lively. And the stories might not translate to have the same meaning as they did ages ago, but what do they mean for us now and how do we keep that valid? And what do we put in a box with the lobster and hope people don't steal it and <laughs> keep it safe? And what do we give away and we are generous with? But yeah, I'd really encourage people to go and look and place themselves in, in their own stories and the old stories of the kayak and, and the people that they come from and kind of get to, get to an understanding that's your own. There's no right and wrong here, there's just a lens of understanding, I think. And it's really important that we come together and discuss our different understandings of these stories. There's no kind of dogma in them, which I think is one of the things that makes them really beautiful. Mm -hmm. They're there for their own sake, not to serve some larger power dynamic, <laughs> like many of the stories that we receive. It's really interesting that you bring up First Nations because something that emerged for me when you were reading the story about the salmon and the otter and that kayak with her herd and the eagle was the fact that this curious human goes out to try to find some information and keeps encountering these figures who just spontaneously tell him stories that seem to have nothing to do with his question. And, and it just reminds me of so many of the older people that you might meet, like grandparents and like traditional knowledge holders. And, and it's also a factor of 
indigenous communication, at least on the West Coast, where I'm from, that you would you would answer a question with a story instead of this, you know, necessarily to the point thing that if you're just looking for an answer, there's this sort of modern or just young people tendency to work that way. And it's a very Western tendency as well to speak point first. And I think that a lot of miscommunication between generations and also between settlers and indigenous folks comes from this assumption that we should be speaking point first and that stories are beside the point somehow. And I really love that that's what, that's what happens when I ask an elder a question. I'm blessed with a story instead of some flat, factual answer to the question. I just wanted to bring that up in that it reminded me of both of these worlds that traditional wisdom is held in story rather than facts. Yeah, in, in Scotland, it's the same, like, yeah, that people will tell you a story. They will be like, I, well, did you know that your cousin, that editor? And that still happens today. Um, my mom does it a lot. If you ask her a question, she'll be like, did I ever tell you about Mavis? Da, 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 da. And sometimes the story doesn't have an end. My mom's very old. She will blether. She will sit and blether a lot. But yeah, the fact that there's just these three, four different entities going, well, I don't know. Maybe go pop off and see that one. And then they're like, oh, I've been here so long. Look at my big earth hole. <laughs> Look at my anvil. I've been sharpening my beak. You're like, okay. The poetry of it, though. Yeah, it's nice. Thank you so much for being willing to share these stories with me, your personal ones and the ones that you read to me. I really, really appreciate it. And I know that people are going to be just so excited about the huge breadth of information that you brought and your personal touch and your your openness is really so appreciated. I've always appreciated speaking with you and I'm so happy that you're spending the time in the evening in Scotland, <laughs> in your attic, hanging out over the, the oak grove in the moon. That's just, <laughs> it's so special. And I, I really appreciate this time. Thank you so much for having me, Danica. I hope people get what they would like from it or need or didn't even know they wanted. Please just point people to the direction of my website and I'll share Alistair White's paper with you as well because it's really interesting and I haven't done it justice but it's long yes I'm <laughs> happy to very, share very that is there anything else so we've got your website and we've got the paper is there anywhere else that you'd like people to find you in terms of other places to find stuff out about me website Instagram kayak Sibarium, Facebook kayak Sibarium, Twitter unsurprisingly enough kayak <laughs> and presentations on YouTube and uh, unsurprisingly, Kayak Severian, that you can look at presentations I've done for academics and stuff like that. That's amazing. And thank you so much. I hope that your winter is warm and cozy. Thanks for being here. You too. Thanks for having me. Cheers. I'd like to share a very special tune with you to round out this episode. It's called The Old Woman of the Mill Dust, or The Kayak of the Mill Dust, and it was once accompanied by a unique dance that's described in the Carmina Gadelica. The Carmina Gadelica is a collection of charms, prayers, and other lore of rural Scotland, and it was collected by Alexander Carmichael in the 19th century. In the dance to this song, a woman appears to die of old age and be reborn with the help of her dance partner which illustrates the death and rebirth cycle associated with the kayak, 
which Scott made reference to earlier in the episode. The title of the song, The Old Woman of the Mill Dust, may be a reference to the kayak's appearance at the harvest, when the last sheaf that's cut is sometimes called the kayak. The mill, of course, is where flour is made from grain, which is what was being harvested. The mill also has added associations of bodies of water, which is what turns the mill wheel, and the kayak has also been connected, beyond bodies of water, with spinning, which is what a mill wheel does to produce flour out of grain. Here's a description of the dance, the old woman of the mill dust, from the Carmina Gadelica. One dance is called Kayak and Dudain, Carlin of the Mill Dust. This is a curious character dance. The writer got it performed for him several times. It is danced by a man and a woman. The man has a rod in his right hand, variously called the druidic wand or the magic wand. The man and the woman gesticulate and attitudinize before one another, dancing round and round, in and out, crossing and recrossing, changing and exchanging places. The man flourishes the wand over his own head and over the head of the woman, whom he touches with the wand, and who falls down, as if dead, at his feet. He bemoans his dead Carlin, dancing and gesticulating around her body. He then lifts up her left hand, and looking into the palm, breathes upon it, and touches it with the wand. Immediately, the limp hand becomes alive and moves from side to side, and up and down. The man rejoices and dances around the figure on the floor, and having done the same to the right hand and to the left and right foot in succession, they also become alive and move. But although the limbs are living, the body is still inert. The man kneels over the woman and breathes into her mouth and touches her heart with the wand. The woman comes to life and springs up, confronting the man, then the two dance vigorously and joyously, as in the first part. This is the enchanting and enlivening Kayak of the Mill Dust by Alison Kinnair and Christine Primrose.
Thank you for joining us for this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I have. If you'd like to hear future episodes, please subscribe and leave a positive review of the podcast on your podcast app. I also appreciate it a great deal when you share the podcast episodes with people you think would enjoy them also. I've linked all the resources mentioned in the episode in the show notes, as well as information about the music in this episode, and links for where you can buy the songs and recordings you've heard. I want to say a heartfelt thank you to all of the artists whose sounds grace this episode, and a special thanks to Sylvia Woods, whose song Forest March is the theme to Fair Folk Podcast. If you love the songs, please buy these tracks directly through the performers through these links in the show notes, because this benefits them much more than simply streaming the tracks that you like. I'll be back soon with an Almanac episode of the podcast for December. Please take good care, and I'll talk to you soon.